This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, a liver autoimmune disease that may get mistaken for something else. He did the blood work, and about two weeks later, he called back and said, uh, we need to have a private discussion about your drinking habits. I don't drink, so that really shocked me. A disease called PBC when Radio Health Journal returns. Here's something you may not have considered when you visit the dentist. Your mouth is the gateway to the body. It's where germs enter. Saliva and other material from the mouths of dozens of patients per day builds up inside the vacuum tube and saliva ejection valve. And Dr. Jerry Cohen, clinical assistant professor at a dental school in the Midwest, says if backflow occurs in the saliva ejection valve, it may expose patients to dangerous infectious material. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, backflow occurs in about one in five patients who close their lips around a saliva evacuator tip, pulling liquid and any germs left behind by the last patient back into a person's mouth. That's why Dove backflow prevention valves from Stoma Dental are a critical technology to prevent cross-contamination. The new disposable Dove backflow prevention valve from Stoma Dental is a one-way valve that prevents backflow and eliminates cross-contamination between patients. Dentists can have a new level of confidence in their infection control efforts, and patients can too. Find out more at BeSafeDental.com. Back in early 2003, then 40-year-old Allie Robertson of suburban Cleveland wasn't feeling very good. But her uncomfortable symptoms didn't seem to make any sense or fit any pattern. I had the famous fatigue, but being a single mom and going to school full-time and working full-time and everything else that I juggled, people said, of course you're tired, you know. And then I had itching. The itching, you know, was your hands, your feet. I can't say that it was abnormal, but you know, they didn't really know what to do with it. They didn't really have an answer for it. And then belly pain, you know, just that upper abdominal always felt like you had kind of just indigestion, your upper abdominal area hurting. And I just, I would eat Tums like they were candy. Allie lived with the symptoms, but decided to take control of her health when she got married. She had a routine physical that included blood work, and the results showed liver enzymes that were dangerously out of balance. He did the blood work, and about two weeks later, he called back and said, uh, we need to have a private discussion about your drinking habits. I don't drink, so that really shocked me, and I told him I didn't drink, so he was obviously a little bit more concerned about it, and we decided it was just a laboratory fluke at that moment and decided to wait six weeks and repeat the blood work. We did that, and when the blood work came back, it was even more elevated than it had been six weeks before. So once again, he asked me about my drinking habits. (laughs) So uh, my husband confirmed to him that my wife doesn't drink, so there has to be something else going on. Almost all chronic inflammatory liver diseases have cirrhosis or scarring as their endpoint, But even a subtle amount of inflammation can lead to heart problems or kidney disease and a higher risk of death. It's no wonder Allie was accused of being a secret heavy drinker because alcohol is the number one cause of liver disease. But Dr. John Vierling, professor of medicine and surgery and chief of hepatology at the Baylor College of Medicine, says you might be surprised what constitutes heavy drinking. We know that quantitative risk for a woman would be a single drink on daily and a weekly basis. So seven drinks of alcohol. What do I mean by a drink? 
one and a half ounces of hard liquor, one can of beer, five ounces of wine. Then for a man, it turns out that it's two drinks per day. Now, that may seem a little sexist, but it has a lot to do with the metabolic capacity to detoxify alcohol. However, those limits don't apply to everyone. If I were to line up people and have them exceed that, extraordinarily exceed it, drink a fifth of whiskey a day daily for five years, I'm only going to have in that population a maximum of about 30 out of 100, 30 percent that will actually get alcoholic liver disease because it's not just the alcohol. You have to have sufficient quantity to be at risk, but it's your genetics of metabolism that puts you at risk. However, what most people don't know is that alcohol is responsible for only 45 percent of cirrhosis. The majority is a result of other problems. You have a cluster of diseases called viral hepatitis diseases. Hepatitis B and hepatitis C dominate that. You then have autoimmune liver diseases, autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cholangitis, primary sclerosing cholangitis. You then have fatty liver disease that is non-alcoholic in nature, called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic steatosis. And then finally, you have genetic diseases that can occur in childhood or adulthood and lead to cirrhosis. So they actually collectively account for the majority of cases of cirrhosis in the world. Allie Robertson had one of those other causes, a disorder called PBC. PBC is the acronym for the disease now known as primary biliary cholangitis. Some people that may have heard the term before may say, well, didn't it once be called primary biliary cirrhosis? And they would be right. But we've changed the name because people with this disease most often do not have cirrhosis. It has an advanced to that advanced scarring state. Now, this is a disease caused by an autoimmune reaction, meaning your immune system turns against itself. It predominantly afflicts adult women, and it results in destruction of small to medium caliber bile ducts within the liver. And this, in turn, results in a retention of bile. That backup of bile, that stasis of bile, we use the Greek term cholestasis, which really just translates to stasis of bile, is the progressive nature. That, in turn, leads to progression of scarring, and that ultimately ends in cirrhosis. In women, PBC is the second largest reason for liver transplants, ahead of hepatitis C. In fact, PBC affects about 10 times as many women as men. Veerling says if a woman has any kind of autoimmune disease, such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, she has a greater risk of PBC as well. PBC is an autoimmune disease, and thus it is associated with a family history of other family members that have autoimmune diseases. It could be PBC that they had, but it might be another autoimmune disease. If you have PBC, however, you do have the risk of having another associated autoimmune disease. And there are several, and we look for those diligently as we follow patients because if they create symptoms, we want to address those diseases and their symptoms in our treatment strategy. However, those other autoimmune diseases may cause confusion in diagnosing PBC because PBC itself often has no symptoms. The symptoms might actually reflect those other autoimmune diseases. Symptoms, for example, hypothyroidism which is a common associated autoimmune disease consequence in PBC patients, or dry eyes, dry mouth, or other forms of autoimmune diseases. Those symptoms may dominate. If symptoms are exclusively present that are due to PBC, they are most often 
fatigue, which we all know is nonspecific and can occur in virtually anything. So people are not going to think of fatigue as being synonymous with worrying about PBC or other liver diseases. That's where the liver tests come in and pursuing abnormal results. Then the other key is that when you back up bile, when you retain bile, this cholestasis, the destruction of the bile ducts, you can itch. And you don't have a rash. So this itch tends to be diurnal, meaning it's better in the morning and it worsens at night. And because of that, it often compromises sleep. Medications can treat PBC, but the disease itself has to be diagnosed first. And Veerling says blood tests are too easily passed over. He says it's not a bad idea to specifically ask about liver tests whenever you have a routine physical. Then cirrhosis can be treated early or prevented. The liver is a mystery to too many people, and that includes physicians and healthcare providers. And we need to be proactive in seeking information that verifies that our liver is healthy and when it is not, that we understand what the diagnosis or plan is to return it to health. You can find out more about all our guests through links on our website, radiohealthjournal.net. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Chronic pain affects nearly 100 million Americans. For these patients, the condition is a heavy burden that consumes their life, taking a mental and physical toll. Unfortunately, many chronic pain patients are unsure where to turn after other treatments have done little to relieve their pain. For many of these patients, the latest advancement in spinal cord stimulation can offer meaningful pain relief and an improved path forward. The FDA recently approved Burst DR Stimulation, a new therapy option for patients. Dr. Pankage Mehta of Pain Specialist Boston tells us more about this new therapy from St. Jude Medical. My job as a pain specialist is to provide my patients therapy options that can alleviate chronic pain and improve their quality of life. Burst DR stimulation is different than other spinal cord stimulation therapies. It was created by doctors to mimic naturally occurring patterns in the brain, which can address both their emotional and physical response to chronic pain. To take the next step to learn more about Burst DR Stimulation, go to PowerOverYourPain.com. That's PowerOverYourPain.com. Implantation of a spinal cord stimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risks, such as paralysis, during the implantation procedure. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if spinal cord stimulation therapy is right for them. Medical notes this week. Schools have apparently been successful at serving healthy lunches that keep kids from gaining excess weight. But a new study in the journal Obesity shows that children in kindergarten through second grade are gaining too much weight anyway, all during summer vacation. The study finds that by the time they're in second grade, more than 28% of kids are overweight and 11% are obese. People who have urinary tract infections are often told to drink cranberry juice. But a new study says you should go to the doctor instead. The study in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that cranberry juice or cranberry capsules don't prevent urinary tract infections or help people get over them once they have an infection. And finally, science is coming out in support of chubby older men. The new book, How Men Age, reports that men carrying a little extra weight 
have stronger immune systems and are less likely to have heart attacks and prostate cancer. In fact, slightly heavier men are 50% less likely to die in any given year than their skinnier counterparts. What's more, studies show men sporting a dad bod are more attractive to the opposite sex. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Research shows that California raisins may positively impact diabetic nutrition. Registered dietitian Dr. Jim Painter says, People with type 2 diabetes mellitus who consumed raisins during a 12-week study had a 23% reduction in post-meal glucose levels and a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure compared to a group eating a comparable amount of snack crackers. While cardiovascular disease is affected by various factors, these findings build upon an earlier study showing that raisins may significantly lower blood pressure and post-meal glucose levels among people with prehypertension. Find more info at loveyourraisins.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at radiohealthjournal.net.